Welcome back, friends. This is the Reverend Mary Vano, and I want to welcome you today to JOY, a podcast from St. Margaret's Episcopal Church in Little Rock, Arkansas, where our conversations about life and faith always include Jesus, others, and you. Today is a real treat for me. We're going to have a conversation with the very Reverend Cynthia Kittredge, Dean and President of the Seminary of the Southwest in Austin, Texas. In addition to leading a thriving seminary, Cynthia is a much-respected biblical scholar and author of quite a few books and articles. Twenty years ago, she was my professor of New Testament. Cynthia, thank you so much for taking time to speak with me today. It's my pleasure, Mary. I remember 20 years ago perfectly. (laughs) Me too. Those were good times. Well, I was thinking earlier today about when and how I fell in love with reading scripture. That's what we're going to talk about today. You know, I grew up in the Episcopal Church. I think I knew the gospel pretty well, not like my Baptist friends. I didn't know the Bible, but like my Baptist friends did. But I knew a bit of scripture, maybe enough to be a little put off by it. I went to Texas Christian University for my undergraduate, and I signed up for a religion major, and I was cautiously moving into those Bible classes because I was beginning to discern my call to ordained ministry, and I certainly didn't know the Bible backwards and forwards, not by a long shot, but I knew Paul a little bit. I knew he said women should not speak or have authority in the church. I did not know what to do with that. So it was in college that my professors began to teach me about really reading scripture, knowing that there was such a thing as biblical criticism and interpretation, how we read the direction of scripture, how we consider the historical situation, all of this. And that, I think, was how I fell in love with scripture when I really learned how to read the Bible. You, thankfully, expanded my knowledge even further. You have dedicated much of your life to teaching people how to read scripture. And I imagine that had to start somewhere. So how did you fall in love with scripture? Well, I love that question. And I really am happy to hear your story because it makes me feel a little bit better about mine, which is that it took me a while to fall in love with scripture. I think my earliest positive associations with scripture was being a little girl in the Episcopal church where we always read the Psalms and they were written in the book and I knew where to find them and we could read them. And that language of the Psalms was very formative for me, even though I'm not sure I understood it. I knew it was beautiful. And the second passage of scripture, which I really learned very first was, it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And everyone went to be taxed, everyone to his own city. And that's the King James version of the Christmas story that was part of our Christmas pageant for many years when I was growing up as a little girl in church, when little girls couldn't do very many things in church. But one thing they could be was the speaking angel, which I was. Behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy. I guess they assumed the speaking angel was a girl. As you grew up, you could be the narrator and you could read from the beginning. It came to pass in those days. So the Psalms and the Christmas story were my first most formative falling in love with scripture. But other than that, I was pretty much a blank slate. I was also a religion major in college and I loved theology 
and I loved ideas. And I tried to take a New Testament course in college and it didn't work. I didn't understand it. I didn't understand what was going on. I didn't understand how to use the gospel parallels. I didn't understand the whole theory of transmission of the Jesus tradition. And it was a complete bust. So I really didn't fall in love with scripture again until I was in seminary at Harvard Divinity School. And I think I fell in love with it through my head first, and then my heart followed. I had a couple of wonderful professors who were very, very erudite and walked us through the details of historical criticism and of the historical setting. And I fell in love with the Epistle to the Hebrews, the Letters of Paul, the Gospel of John, other Gospels. It was through that gaining of that knowledge that I started to fall in love with it. And I also realized there were a lot of problems with it, including the one you mentioned about women may not speak in church. And so I really got interested in how we interpret it. And that was my specialty in divinity school, hermeneutics or interpretation, how it can be revelatory, what role does learning play in learning to love it. Since then, I've lived with it as a priest for 40 years. And it's been my constant companion, as well as my academic subject. It's what I've taught. And I truly do love scripture. It wasn't immediate, and it took quite a journey. It's a challenge for me to invite other people into that love, partly through learning and partly through some other things we'll talk about in this conversation. You're a perfect angel. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, the tinsel and the flashlight candle. And yeah, it was really wonderful. That's a good place to begin your journey of scripture. For a lot of us, there does have to be a certain amount of deconstruction that begins when we start seriously reading the Bible. Again, back in college, I worked for Dr. Claudia Camp in the religion department. You may know Claudia, Old Testament professor. And I graded a lot of her exams for her. And I remember that a lot of freshmen would come in at TCU. Students were required to take a religion credit and you could choose world religions or you could take Bible. And a lot of people just signed up for Bible because they'd been to Sunday school. They figured it'd be an easy A. Turned out it wasn't so easy. I remember how angry some students would get because they were being challenged to understand and interpret in different ways than they had perhaps learned in their upbringing. I taught New Testament at a college also before I came to the seminary. I mainly taught Roman Catholic students, so they didn't have a lot of Bible background, but it was a lot more challenging than they expected it to be. You have taken on some big challenges in scripture. One of your books is the Gospel of John. I consider John to be a challenging gospel to read. And you wrote that book for a series called Conversations with Scripture. That title just intrigues me. How do we have a conversation with Scripture, which is, you know, a book, it can't talk back. Scripture doesn't talk on its own, unfortunately. It really needs a reader. In my understanding, the reader brings something to the encounter with scripture, and it's usually responses and questions. It's that responding and questioning that I call the conversation. And that's the conversation that makes the word the living word. In that conversation, the spirit is present. 
it's not only a conversation with the individual and scripture, but it's also a conversation with the tradition of the church's interpretation of the scripture and the broader community of the church is always in conversation with scripture. That's the model of conversation I believe is particularly Anglican. And the book that was written in that series used conversation because it could encompass that interaction of scripture, tradition, reason, and experience that we consider the Anglican pillars of authority or avenues of authority. Conversation is a very dynamic model in which a person is deeply involved, not just receiving. So we have conversation partners when we come to scripture, a community both present contemporary, but also we've got the whole community, historical community of the saints before us. So why should we engage in this conversation? The most recent writings contained in the New Testament are nearly 2,000 years old now. So this is ancient literature. What do you think it has to teach us? Well, it is old and it is ancient literature. But as the Christian faith understand it, it's also more than ancient literature. It's holy, sacred literature that has hold some kind of authority for us, and it's valuable to us as a people of faith. And that's kind of the trick in reading scripture is understanding it as ancient literature and as valuable for the people of God. My first answer to that question as Episcopalians is when you say, why should we have a conversation with scripture? My answer is, well, we have to. That's what we do as Christians. And it's built into our tradition as Episcopalians through the daily office, which contains much, much scripture daily, morning and evening, and the service of the word and the Eucharist. So it's built in, even if we didn't want to, we do. Probably the most important thing to me is that scripture gives us access to the faith of others. It gives us a way into a Christian community of the past. My encounter with God and Christ in scripture is really mediated through those people who had that faith. So that's one attraction. Another attraction is that we're able to witness the conversation that's happening within scripture, which is another complex kind of thing. But let me give you an example. There's a conversation in scripture about does Israel need to have a king? And what if Israel doesn't have a king? What kind of king is Jesus? Or how is he kingly if he's not literally a king? And you see that conversation running through scripture, and it's very interesting and fascinating, and there's not one answer. Another reason we should is because it's beautiful. Some of it, not all of it, but it is beautiful. And it is an alternative world to the world that we live in. And the experiment of trying on that world and living in that world gives us great insight and great comfort. And finally, it teaches us how to interpret death, sin, loss, life, disappointment, and how to recognize joy and beauty. So those are my answers to what's appealing, in addition to the fact that we don't have any choice. I sometimes do this thought of experiment. You know, what if we could choose the literature that we built our life around? Would we choose Christian scripture, or would we choose Shakespeare or Emily Dickinson or Virginia Woolf or name another kind of literature that you know and love? Fortunately, we don't get to choose because it would be very difficult, but really scripture is the only thing like it that's been interpreted in a community as authoritative for such a long time. It's really part of who we are because it is prescribed for us in the Episcopal Church that we read at least four pieces of scripture every Sunday, 
and there are assignments for reading scripture throughout the week. So it becomes a part of us. I still feel insecure sometimes around my Baptist friends, (laughs) you know? I think, man, they've got all those passages memorized and that's great. But I surprise myself sometimes about just how deeply I know scripture because I've been around it all my life, because I've heard it read, I've heard sermons all my life. And now for about 20 years, I've been deeply engaged in trying to study and interpret God's word. I'm glad for the conversation. I think it's moved me in so many ways. And I still find new insight every time I go back. One of my fantasy dream books that I want to write sometime is called Doing Things with Scripture. I'm going to have a chapter on singing and a chapter on painting and a chapter on all the ways that we encounter Scripture that's not studying it or analyzing it. I think you're referring to some of those ways that it seeps into us. It aren't just the verses we know or the different kinds of piety around that. Well, you need to find time in your busy (laughs) schedule (laughs) to write that book, Cynthia. (laughs) I'll be looking forward to that one. It is a real blessing. I told you I started out with a bit of a hang-up. Women should not speak or hold authority in the church. Well, it didn't take me long to discover Galatians. (laughs) In Christ, there is no male or female. And that beautiful poetry of scripture that to me cuts to the truth of who we are, that has helped shape me. present us, though, with some challenges. I think when you start reading scripture, you're going to encounter some roadblocks. What are some of the roadblocks that people run into, and are there ways around them? I think one of the roadblocks is all the shoulds around scripture, because the Christian tradition has elevated scripture to such an extent, particularly the Protestant tradition, you should like it even, or you should fall in love with it. Well, what if you don't? I think there's some shame that people have around scripture. At least I've experienced that a lot in my pastoral conversations with people. Shame around lack of knowledge, insecurity, guilt around not loving it or liking it or knowing it. That's sort of one complex of roadblocks. Another is it's alienness. It's very strange. If you encounter it just in its raw alienness without the theological tradition, which has interpreted it, it can be very, very strange because it does come from a world that's not our own. I've been very faithful in going to morning prayer at chapel for the last few weeks, and we're in the whole saga of the patriarchs and the different wives of Jacob and all this story of family drama, and it's different. One day, a couple weeks ago, we read the sacrifice of Isaac. I could hardly stand to listen to it. And I thought, this is our religion. This is the most horrifying religion we could possibly have. (laughs) It comes from a world that's not our own. The thoroughly patriarchal and even violent world from this text comes from, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. Our modern minds translate that into something that's about wives and husbands, but that's not what the text says. And that's not the world it comes from. It truly is addressed to men. 
thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. And it's about women as property. And those are a few of the roadblocks. And overcoming them, part of that overcoming is education, learning more about it. You know, mm-hmm. the course you took at TCU, the kind of teaching we do in the parish to orient people to it and give them the familiarity with the background and all that. Learning more is part of it. And when I got out of seminary, I wrote my thesis in seminary called Scripture and Biblical Criticism in the Episcopal Church. And it was all about how contemporary biblical criticism had influenced the three-year lectionary and the prayer book revision. And it was pretty interesting. And at the time, like my mission in life was to help all Episcopalians know these things. Like that would be my mission was to just teach everybody all the stuff. As I've gotten older and had more experience, I've come to think that even more valuable than learning more about it for people is being able to have a genuine experience of scripture, to actually experience it through engaging with it with the imagination. And so I've gotten more and more interested in the relation between scripture and poetry and the arts, voice, dance, all the ways that it communicates beyond the rational. And I think that's part of my doing things with scripture idea. It's something you do something with and it does something to you. It's not just something you think about. I used to think education was going to solve everything. And I realized that there are some limits to learning about it. say one of my most profound spiritual experiences with scripture came through art rather than through the written word. It was Fra Angelica's Annunciation. I was on a trip with one of my religion professors to Italy. I had seen that painting in textbooks, but when we were there in Florence, I did not know that I would be seeing that painting in We turn a corner, it's at the top of a stairwell, and Mm. it just blew me away. And in that moment, this scene of the Annunciation of the angel visiting Mary, it became real to me that she said yes, and I knew I had to say yes. It's scripture, but I experienced it tangentially, maybe we can say in conversation with an artist who interpreted it, but of course, through the power of the Holy Spirit, most of all. I am intrigued by how we enter through scripture to know God. And it's important, right, to know that scripture is not God, but through scripture, through this conversation with all these ancestors of faith and how they knew God in their lives and the conversations they had with each other, the struggles, these may have been thousands of years ago, but we're still humans just like they were. It seems a worthy endeavor. Yeah, I would say that scriptures, for me, it's one of the major vehicles for my religious experience now. Other people, the Eucharist and reading scripture. This year, we are concentrating on the Gospel of Luke. We are in lectionary year C. So for those who are following along with us, when you come to church this year, you're going to hear a lot from the Gospel of Luke. Let's dig into the Gospel of Luke a little bit. We've had a broad conversation about scripture and how we engage it. What about the gospel of Luke? Are there particular 
roadblocks in Luke, things that we should be aware of. What do we need to know about Luke? Luke is one of the most charming and accessible of the four gospels. Some people think it's the Episcopalian gospel. (laughs) I've never heard that. Yes. Very elegant, very educated, great storyteller. So in some ways it's accessible. And when people are talking about the real Jesus and their idea of who the real Jesus is, often it's actually Luke's Jesus that they're actually referring to. It's a fairly, well, this is a misleading word, but low Christology in the sense that Jesus is praying to God, reliant on God, talking about God as father. He's not talking about himself as God very much. I'd say one of the things that makes it harder to understand, but people kind of don't appreciate it, is the conventions of the biblical background that are communicated in the Gospel of Luke that we're unfamiliar with. You know, that people of the time wouldn't have known so well, but the echoes of the Greek translation of the scriptures, the Septuagint, all the customs around, you know, story of births of famous people, Elizabeth and Zechariah story the way of talking about the virgin birth, the fulfillment of promises to Israel, all this deep background is not as familiar to Christian readers. That's why it's great to read a really good scholar or scholars who elucidate that. Luke is telling the story of Jesus for Luke's own community, living in 90 or 100 CE after Jesus' death, using other sources, particularly the Gospel of Mark. And not only telling the story of Jesus, but telling the story of Jesus and the story of what's going on in Luke's community also. For example, a couple of things that are happening in Luke's community that Luke is subtly weighing in on is the role of women in the community, women leaders, the role of Gentiles who now make up the majority of Luke's community, even though this was a promise made to Israel, issues of wealth and poverty. Luke's audience was likely rich and literate, and Jesus' Jewish audience was not literate, not Gentile, not rich. So you see a lot of translation going on in the way Luke tells a story. And there's one more that's really key, which is the relationship between the Christian community and the Roman Empire, which is a different kind of relationship than the time of Jesus or Mark. In Mark, Jesus' first sermon is preached, you know, right after he comes out of the wilderness and it's the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the good news. I think I'm leaving one sentence out, but it's basically those sentences. And he's not in a building. He's not wearing any vestments. It's the summary of the gospel. And in Luke, he's in a synagogue. He's actually reading from a scroll and it's highly unlikely that Jesus was literate. Now that would really freak people out. So sorry to say that on the podcast, but (laughs) Highly unlikely that the historical Jesus would have been reading in the synagogue. But Luke gives us this wonderful story appropriate for his time with all this theological development of Jesus preaching in the synagogue at Nazareth, well, reading scripture and then announcing its fulfillment and then preaching. And then being rejected promptly. And then being rejected right then. And Mark also has a story of Jesus being rejected, but it's quite a bit different. It doesn't mm-hmm. happen in a church setting. And Anyway, one of the wonderful things about scripture study is comparing the gospels. And there's so many interesting things you can do with that. And that's another fantasy book, which I'll tell you about later. (laughs) Well, even as we 
are recording this podcast, I lead a Bible study group on Tuesday mornings. And right now we're looking at the Sermon on the Plain in Luke. And there are such interesting comparisons to make with the Sermon on the Mount from the Gospel of Matthew. So it's really interesting when you add in the knowledge that Luke's audience seems to have been probably a wealthier community. And then to look at how in Luke's version, blessed are the poor, Matthew says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Luke just says, blessed are the poor. And then woe to you who are rich. That's an interesting challenge, perhaps, that the gospel writer offers his community. And you have Luke telling the story of the forebears of Jesus, whom the primary one is Mary. I said in my sermon this Sunday, which I thought was pretty good, that Mary's song in the hill country is the sister of the Sermon on the Mount. It's a preview. It's a sister. It's an ally. I think that Luke's gospel incorporates some very, very radical ideas about the reversal between rich and poor. And at the same time, Luke makes room for the rich in the community and tells them they have some responsibility. I'm so grateful that we have within scripture, different witnesses that lend different perspectives. So do you have a favorite passage of scripture? Well, I have so many favorites. It really depends on the day. One of them is the story of the woman who anoints Jesus in the gospel of Mark. I couldn't decide if it was Mark or John. I'll use John for now. John's story of the anointing. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. There they gave a dinner for him. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those at table with him. Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped them with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. There we have a Eucharistic sacramental meal that precedes the Last Supper in John and has these two women representing the ministry of sort of a prophetic ministry and a table ministry. You have this sensual detail, which again, doesn't work through the mind, but it works through fragrance of the fragrance filling the whole room. That's definitely one of my favorites. You can smell it, taste it. It's all there. My understanding is that this fragrance is the good news. Good news that's infiltrating and filling not only the room, but the whole world. So the world has been a complicated place in recent years, maybe always, mm. <laughs> but it is especially complicated right now. Is there a particular passage of scripture that you think is meaningful right now? I chose some of the opening words in Genesis for the world today. I'll read it and maybe you'll see why. And God said, let the waters under the sky be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together, he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth put forth vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees of every kind on earth that bear fruit with the seed in it. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants, yielding seed of every kind and trees of every kind, bearing fruit with seed in it. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. I want us to know deeply the goodness of the world, the goodness of created nature, God's role in it, 
our responsibility for it. And it just seems like those opening words of the Bible set a vision, set this idea of the goodness of the world, which of course is fulfilled and ratified in the incarnation, sets that out for us. It is so grounding to come back to scripture, to come back to in the beginning and be assured that God created us with a place and for a purpose and to know that it is good. Well, this podcast, the idea for this podcast in general was inspired by Jesus's words to his disciples in the gospel of John. I have said these things to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Cynthia, thank you for making my joy complete today. Well, thank you, Mary, for this really life-giving conversation and just grounded in so much affection for scripture, for the church, for each other, for our shared history and our vocation. It's really been a pleasure. Well, thanks to all of our listeners today also. As always, if you have questions or comments or suggestions, send an email to me. My address is mvano at stmargaretschurch.org. And please join us again next time because our J-O-Y is not complete without you. is a production of St. Margaret's Episcopal Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. Thanks to Stephen Vano, who composed and performed our theme music, and to Heidi Soule, our producer. Mm-hmm.